This week, we're going to be looking at Daniel. We're slowly moving forward, and this week, we're actually going to be looking at Daniel. We're actually going to start in Jeremiah, so don't turn to Daniel yet. We're actually going to be in Jeremiah. I know that's a little bit of a, uh, a misleading statement there for a second, but Daniel. Daniel chose to stand, and you might remember Daniel for some of the stances he takes, and we're actually going to be looking at it. Now, last week, if you weren't here, we looked at Manasseh. King Manasseh was going down in history as probably one of the worst kings in all of Israel's history. King Manasseh did absolutely horrible things. He led the nation directly into sin. He practiced witchcraft. He, he literally sacrificed his own kids into a burning fire uh, to please the gods that he was worshiping. At one point, he had the opportunity to see God and his love for him, and he got a change in his heart. It was later in his life, and he was able to finally influence his grandson, his grandson, Josiah. Now, Josiah, actually, uh, he, he took over. Uh, he ended up going into the throne at about 12 years of age. Uh, and so he was a king for a very long time. He actually died at about 50 years old. He died at the hands of the Egyptians, the Pharaoh Necho, not to be confused with those little funny-tasting wafers that come in that wax paper. If you're, uh, if you're old enough, you may remember the Necho wafers. You know, you got a brown color, and you're never quite sure what that color really is. But uh, Necho, if you're ever going to remember, Josiah died at the hands of Necho, who, funny enough, was serving God, but that is another story for another day. Now, Josiah, after he dies in battle uh, with the Egyptians, uh, his son Jehoahaz takes over. Jehoahaz takes over. Jehoahaz, unfortunately, is not so great. He leads the nation back into sin. Within three years of his reign, the nation is completely back into their old sinful ways. So it doesn't take much. It's very clear from Scripture when we look at it. This is just a side point. It wasn't something I'd originally put down in my notes. The leader really determines the direction of the nation. Um, with the election coming up, the leader really does determine the direction of the nation. That's very clear from God's word. That's just something to chew on. So a couple of weeks back, we looked at Jeremiah. We walked at Jeremiah, and he kept giving these stern warnings about the impending judgment from the Lord because the nation wasn't turning back from their sin. And this week, we're actually going to look into that, and we're actually going to move forward from that. So if you'll turn with me to your Bibles, we're going to look at Jeremiah chapter 25. Jeremiah chapter 25. I'll give you a second to turn there. Here we introduce to King Nebuchadnezzar, which if you've watched any VeggieTale movies, you may remember. Uh, we'll get to there at one point. Okay, Jeremiah chapter 25, verse 8 through 13. Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, because you have not heard my words. This is that stern warning I was talking about. Behold, I will send and take all of the families of the north, says the Lord. And Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant, will bring them against this land and against its inhabitants and against these nations all around, and he will utterly destroy them and make them an, an astonishment, a hissing, and a perpetual desolations. Moreover, I will take them from them the voice of mirth, the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom, the voice of the bride, the sound of the millstones and the light of the lamp. And all this whole land shall be a desolation and an astonishment. And these nations shall serve the king of Babylon for 70 years. Then it will come to pass when 70 years are completed that I will punish the king of Babylon 
and that nation, the land of the Chaldeans, for their iniquity, says the Lord, and I will make it a perpetual desolation. So I will bring to the land all my words, which I have pronounced against it, and as it is written in this book, which Jeremiah has prophesied concerning all the nations. Now, one thing that's very interesting to note here is that Nebuchadnezzar is going to be used as a tool for the destruction that God is bringing. Funny enough, actually, in verse 9, you'll notice that actually he's used as God's servant of this tool of destruction. God also, at the end of these verses, pronounces judgment on Nebuchadnezzar and his land. So he says, I'm going to use them. They're going to bring you into captivity, but at the end of the 70 years, I'm actually going to pronounce judgment on them as well because of their iniquity. What's very interesting is the way that God uses him. Now, for several sermons, I've been talking about how God is using these prophets to warn the nation that this is coming. And now it is finally here. God is not a tyrant. God is not maniacal, and he's not haughtily chasing his people down to make them do his will. He's patient. He has been years of patience in telling the people, be careful, this is what's going to happen if you don't turn from your ways. Be careful. He is not forcing them into this. What he's literally doing is removing his border of protection. He is removing the hand that kept this army back. This army was growing. God knew of it. And God was planning on letting it do something to Israel. But God literally, instead of forcing this army, he just stopped protecting the nation from this army. Said, okay, I'm, I can't protect you any longer. And so God was protecting these people, but why? Why was he protecting them? Because of a covenant. Remember, we've talked about covenants again and again. God told of his consequences, but he's just keeping his promise. God always keeps his promises. God is faithful and he never changes. Now, keep this in mind. He didn't raise the army up to kill the people. He allowed it to grow to size but when the people stopped worshiping him, he literally just removed his hand of blessing. He does that. We've seen it even in our own nation. As the people have slowly turned away from God, he continues to remove his hand of blessing. It's what he did in Israel and what he does with other people. Now, I want to let you know that, number one, God is always working for you. God is always working for you. Dr. Charles Stanley once said, don't you know that God will take responsibility for all the consequences of a heart that is fully devoted to him? God was working for his people even in their judgment. Even in the judgment, he makes a promise. So turn over a couple of chapters forward to Jeremiah chapter 29. Jeremiah 29, just four chapters ahead. And I want to show you that God makes these promises and how he's watching over his people even in the middle of judging them. We're going to start in verse 10. We'll go through verse 14. For thus says the Lord of God, After 70 years are completed at Babylon, I will visit you and perform my good word toward you and cause you to return to this place. For I know the thoughts that I think toward you, says the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and will go and pray to me and I will listen to you. And you will seek me and find me. And when you search for me with all your heart, I will be found by you says the Lord. I will bring you back from your captivity. I will gather you from all the nations, from all the places that where I have driven you, says the Lord, and I will bring you to the place from which I have caused you to be carried away captive. You may recognize the verse there in the middle. It said, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans of welfare, not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. You may recognize these. This is God's promise in the middle of delivering judgment of 70 years. 
in complete context, this is a full 70 years of judgment on sin. Now, are you familiar with the term generation? It pops up in the Bible a bunch. It says this generation or that generation. Now, you might remember sometimes that you've heard it again and again. Now, in fact, actually, um, it's typically it is used about a 30-year time frame. Um, if you think back into Numbers 32, when the Israelite nation is being judged for not listening or obeying God, he causes a full generation to wander in the wilderness. Um, this is those 20 years of age and over, and the nation ends up wandering for 40 years. At that particular circumstance, it's 40 years. Others, it goes as low, actually, as 20 years, but it ends up averaging out that a generation typically means about 30 years. So if you average that and you catch the pronouncement of the judgment, you'll notice that it's two and a half generations that God is punishing. We say that the Lord has remembered us and not forgotten us. And he says, for I know the plans that I have for you when our, our circumstances aren't great for a month, two, maybe a year or so. But this is for 70 years. This is two and a half generations. This is, this is talking that you're going to go into captivity and your grandkids are the ones that are going to leave, not you. This is God severely punishing. And he says, you know what? I know the plans because this is going to look really bad for a very long time. And it's going to look like I have forgotten you. But God hasn't forgotten his people. And he wants them to know that up front. He's going to bring them back. Now, he wants the best for you. So, consequently, the nation is attacked, ravaged, plundered, and finally it's taken as captives to Babylon. Now, pick up the details with me. We're going to turn to Daniel chapter 1. This is where the majority of our story is going to be today. Daniel chapter 1. Just a couple of books forward. It's here we're going to be introduced to our next unlikely set of heroes. So we're going to read verses 1 and 2. And the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and he besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, and with some of the articles of the house of God, which he carried into the land of Shinar, to the house of his God. And he brought the articles and the treasure of the house of his God. Let's keep reading the next couple of verses. Then the king instructed Aphanaz, the master of the eunuchs, to bring some of the children of Israel and some of their king's descendants and some of the nobles. Young men, in whom there was no blemish, but good-looking, gifted, and all wisdom, possessing knowledge and quick to understand, who had ability to serve in the king's palace, and whom they might teach the language and the literature of the Chaldeans. And the king appointed for them daily provision of the king's delicacies, of the wine which he drank, and three years of training for them, so that at the end of the time they now might serve before the king. Now from among those rose the sons of Judah. They were Daniel, Daniel Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. To them the chief of the eunuchs gave names. He gave to Daniel the name Belshazzar, to Hananiah, Shadrach, to Mishael, Meshach, and to Azariah, Abednego. Now the king has decided at this point that it would be much easier to control the nation if he took some of the royalty, some of the famous figures, the people that most of the nation might know of or have heard of, and then transform them into people that would actually follow his rule. Transform them and make them little Nebuchadnezzar people. Okay, so he wants to take those who the nation would look to and make them in his own image so that the people are more likely to follow him overall. 
He selects the best-looking contestants for the future positions of leadership. Then he starts a grueling three-year training program where they get uh, a test of academics. They get a test of astronomy, writing, language, history, worship, and their diet gets completely changed. Not only are these men completely immersed in in the culture, they're indoctrinated. But as their names were changed to reflect their new lives they were being fit into, that's going to bring us to number two today. Number two is, we won't change the world by becoming like it. We won't change the world by becoming like it. You saw that the king just took all the potential influence, all the people that the rest of the nation would listen to or look up to, and he starts molding them to fit his new image the way he wants. Because in all reality, if you are part of our society and you watch television and you see people that are popular on TV, they give advertisements. Why do they pay sports stars and celebrities ridiculous sums of money to give you an advertisement for something that you've never heard of or don't need? Because you're more likely to use that product if you know of this person. It's the same mindset here. The king wants to take these people that you've probably heard of, and now they're going to start saying, oh, this guy's not so bad. He's treating us really well. Why does this culture do this to us? Why does ours do it? Now, does our culture tell us how we should dress? Our culture tells us how we should dress. I was actually kind of, um, I might be alone in this, but I was in shock and awe. I found out recently that the fanny pack is making its way back. If you were a, a child or if you were alive in the 1980s, there was this like, little satchel that you carried on your waist. It is coming back into fashion. Uh, I thought that that was dead and gone. How about uh, parachute pants? You know where the elastic is on the bottom of your pants and not on the top. Uh, and uh, stonewashed jeans. All of the fashions are just coming back. Our culture tells us how to dress and it's continually changing. How about, how about how to think? Does your culture tell you how to think? If you think about COVID, just think about this year alone. Our culture has instilled fear into our nation. It's saying that fear is one of the most important character traits, which is opposite of the Bible, because the Bible says that I have not given you a fear, says the Lord. Yes, we are to be prudent in our choices. There is no doubt about that. We are supposed to be wise and discerning, but not to fear. Today, fear is flaunted like it should be a medal that we strive to achieve. Think of a soldier coming back from war, and instead of getting a medal of honor, he gets a medal of fear. That completely goes away on every thought of thinking, but that is the way that our culture is headed. What about diet? Don't even get me on the fad diet of the month. I mean, it changes every single week. I once saw this uh, YouTube uh, thing where this guy had a time machine. He went back and he was telling these people in the 50s how to change their diet. Don't worry, eggs are bad for you, so don't have eggs. And he comes back, says, oh, you can eat eggs, but just don't eat this. And he goes back and forth. What the dietitians tell us is healthy changes all the time. Our culture does many of the same things. But why does it tell us to do these things? What about our words? Does our culture define our words? Does it change our words? Lately, in our house, we have been looking at the C.S. Lewis books, uh, uh, the Narnia series. They were written back in the 1950s through 1955. So some people in this audience may have been alive when these were written. So you may remember some of the language of that time. The difference in those pages is spectacular compared to today's. Uh, You can't actually read those out loud in most circles these days. Languages evolve. 
And the way that we speak slowly changes and words can fall out of use. But that typically happens over hundreds of years. If you're holding a King James Bible, you have evidence of that change in your hands. But over the last 50 years, our culture has pushed a very specific agenda and made it so that we can't use words that were once very common. The nation wanted the men to look like everyone else. They wanted them to act like everyone else. They wanted them to think like everyone else. They wanted them to conform. They wanted them to no longer be outsiders, but to be little stamps, images of the one that was in charge. But you're going to find here soon that Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. You'll see Daniel made a resolution He made a choice and he resolved and determined in himself that he would not follow the program. He put down the line and he said he wouldn't cross it. To stand in the face of adversity, we can't be wish-washy. We have to be clear that not only did Daniel have a choice, he had to stand for it and he had to pick it up every day. Now, let's continue reading in verses 9 through 16. Daniel 1, 9 through 16. Now God had brought Daniel into favor and goodwill of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear the Lord, the king, who has appointed your food and drink. So why should he see your faces looking worse than the young men as your age? So at this point, Daniel has already brought up to him and said, I feel like the Lord is telling me that I should not be eating this. And the eunuch's reply is, I fear for my life. If you guys start looking sickly, my head will get chopped off. Then you would either endanger my head before the king... There we go. So Daniel said to the steward, whom the chief of the eunuchs had said over him, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, please test your servants for ten days and let them give us vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance be examined before you and the appearance of young men who eat the portion of the king's delicacies, and you can see fit so as to deal with your servants. So he consented with them to this matter and tested them for ten days. At the end of ten days, their futures appeared better and fatter in flesh than all the young men who ate the portion of the king's delicacies. Thus the steward took away their portion of delicacies and the wine that they were to drink and gave them vegetables. Now let that sink in for a moment. Daniel determined to walk a path that he felt God was directing him in. So he made a decision to do so. But it wasn't just a decision alone. He made a decision, and that's a great place to start. We all make decisions. We go to a place and we make this emotional decision. Today I am going to, and then you fill in the blank. But then you have no follow through. Because you know what? If you don't have a plan to back up your decision, it's going to fail. And Daniel had a plan. See, Daniel sat down and he thought through the possibility of the responses. Did you notice that in that passage, Daniel says, For 10 days. He didn't say for a longer period of time. He said, you know what? This is a reasonable time period to show this man that change can happen. Let us have some time. He reasoned within. He actually had a follow-up plan because he was giving a solid argument for his case. He didn't just make a decision, I'm not going to do this, and just snubbed everything. No. He came with a plan. It wasn't a knee-jerk reaction. It was thought out. It was thorough. Likewise, if we are going to follow God when the culture is pointing otherwise, we also need to have a plan. You see, it's once said that there is no cramming for a test of character. It always comes as a pop quiz. There is no test cramming for a test of character. It always comes as a pop quiz. Lately, I've been mentioning, I've been talking about your testimony. We've been memorizing scripture together, but why? 
so that when your character comes into question, when someone asks you about what you believe and why you have it, you already know. Because this quote is very correct. Your character will be tested when you least expect it. And knowing beforehand where you stand and why goes a very long way. So it's with Daniel we realize that it only takes one person to start the change. The Bible clearly points out that it was Daniel that made the choice to make a stand. His friends were for the idea. They're listed there. And later on, we'll talk more about them. But it's Daniel who made the change and his friends agreed. And his friends end up getting some credit later on for other things. They followed Daniel's choice. And their lives were ultimately changed because Daniel chose to stand. Just like the lives around you would change when you make the stand. So what happens next? Up to this point, uh, Daniel has chosen to stand and his friends have stood with him. And up to this point, they've passed the test and they're now ready to face the king. Three years have passed. So pick up the story story with me in uh, verse 19. I'm going to skip down just a couple verses, not very far. 19. Then the king interviewed them, and among all those, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore they served before the king. And in all matters of wisdom and understanding about which the king examined them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and astrologers who were in his realm. So it would seem at this point that God has blessed their efforts. They passed the test. Not only have they passed the test, they've kind of risen to the top of the class as it was. And this is good. This is a starting point. But God's not done with them yet. Because to me, what I see here, knowing the rest of the story, is that God is actually just putting them in a specific place for something even bigger. This is just a stepping stone in their lives. He's given them a platform. And this platform is allowing God to work through them because the king now knows who these men are. They stood out he would have recognized who these men were. And that was important for later on. Not long after they make their first impressive appearance before the king, does Daniel and his friends again have a chance to shine for God. In chapter 2, the king has troubling dreams, you may recount. So he wants these troubling dreams interpreted. He calls all of the wise men up and he says, look, these dreams are really important to me, so I'm not going to tell you what I was dreaming, but you're going to have to give me an interpretation And of course, the wise men, for the most part, they're all con artists and they actually don't know what's really going on. So without any information, they can't really do it. So they say, "Uh, this is a little bit too hard for us. We can't do this. So the king gets irate uh, because his wise men, it turns out, are a bunch of con artists. uh, So he wants them all killed. Only problem is that Daniel and his friends have just been promoted to the position of wise men. So... Let's pick it up in chapter 2, verse 11 through 13. Chapter 2, just a couple verses down, if your uh, Bible's on the same scheme as mine here. It is a difficult thing that the king requests, and there is no other who can tell it to the king except the gods whose dwelling is not with flesh. In other words, we haven't a clue. It's just this, this is not going to work for us. For this reason, the king was very angry and very furious, and he gave the command to destroy all the wise men of Babylon. So the decree went out and they began killing the wise men and they sought Daniel and his companions to kill them. So Daniel and his friends aren't actually there at the time that all of this goes down because they're new wise men, but they're kind of low on the wise men totopo. So they're the newbies of the wise men crowd. So they're not there. 
Uh, but the, the story soon comes to them, and uh, they finally have a chance to shine again. So Daniel, we've already been told, actually we skipped over it, but in the earlier verses, you find out that Daniel can actually interpret dreams. It's one of the giftings that God has given him. So he comes and he tells the king of the vision, and again he stands out from the crowd. Daniel again has a chance to have the spotlight, and he points all the glory back to God. Because of his complete accuracy of this interpretation, Daniel is promoted. So check out near the end of the chapter, chapter 2, 48 through 49. Then the king promoted Daniel and gave him a great many gifts. And he made him a ruler over the whole province of Babylon and the chief administrator over all the wise men of Babylon. So he just got promoted to chief. Also Daniel petitioned the king that he set Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over all the fairs of the province of Babylon. But Daniel sat at the gate of the king. Cool thing is, um, what do they say? Rising tide lifts all boats. Uh, Daniel uh, gets a chance. He gets promoted because of the giftings that God has given him. And he gets his friends promoted into leadership positions. Now this is going to be important if we uh, get a chance at one point here to discuss what happens in the further life chances of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And that's another story for another day on that one. But today, today we looked at, number one, how God is always working for you. God is always working for you. Even when it looks like judgment is coming, there's still a promise in the judgment. God still loves you. It looks like things are going downhill. It looks like things are not working out. It looks like you were in it for the long haul. These people were in for 70 years of captivity. The people that were going in were not the people that were going to go out. And they were told that from the beginning, you will not get out of this. That was a death sentence to these people. You were not going to see your land again. Your grandkids will, but you won't. But he still loved them, and he still was working for them. We also find that we won't change the world by becoming like it. Daniel chose to stand in the face of when his nation was trying to turn him into something that he truly was not. Our culture is always pushing a very specific message to become like it. You were always being fed a cultural message to become more and more like everybody else. And there are good things and there are bad things. Pick up any magazine, read any news article, watch any television show. The culture is always pushing you towards something and you are supposed to fit in. Be careful. The more you look like the culture, the less you will stand out. And finally, it only takes one person to start the change. It was Daniel who chose that. His friends were on board, which means other people around you are on board with your plan to stand out. They just need you to step up. It just took one person. There were other people that were ready, but it took Daniel to step up. You see, God loves you, and he wants the best for you. And it can't be overstated how much he loves you but it's our sin that separates us from his love. Last week, we saw that it was humility that finally brings us back through Manasseh and what happened in his life. Today's verse, Romans 5.8, said that while we were still sinners, Jesus paid the price to bring us back into the family of God, to restore our relationship, but we can't do it without his help. God is always working for you whether you know his love or not. And if you know his love, then you know that you won't change the world by becoming like it. If you want to see the world change, remember that it's only going to take one person standing for God to start the change. So stand for God this week in the way that he's calling you to and watch the world slowly change 
all because you made a decision to stand for your God. Father, I do thank you uh, for this opportunity. I know this message was a little bit shorter on purpose, but Father, I ask that you continue to use these lessons. Help us to look at Daniel and his decisions. Help us to know how much you love us, even when things are falling apart around us. You still have a plan for our well-being, just as you have promised the people back in Jeremiah. Father, help us to focus on you, whether it's the hard times or the good times. Lord, help us each to see you working behind the scenes. Father, I thank you so much for the opportunity to, to glean from your word today. Help us to walk away with something that we can put into practice this week. In Jesus' name, amen.